The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. A couple of announcements before we get started. Next Saturday, or a week from this Saturday, everybody gets confused about the next and the this, We'll have a personal evangelism workshop here with Gene Brown, 10 a.m. over in the North Wing. And we are still planning to have an open house to have people look at the new place on the Beltway. But we do not have a time established yet, so just be flexible. And then we will have a meeting on Sunday night after church to uh, discuss the property. And then on the 14th, we're going to start our new curriculum in uh, Sunday school and start a new teen class. And Ike Spiker is going to start the teen class, taking them through a framework series. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, make sure we're ready to focus on the teaching of God's word. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to be refreshed and strengthened by the eternal truth that is present here. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells each of us and who fills us with the knowledge of your word. And we pray that as we study your word that you would challenge us with it, that we would be able to understand these things under the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we would uh, be motivated to grow and to advance in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 1. Come on in. Hebrews chapter 1, down to verse, about verse 8. Hebrews chapter 1, about verse 8, but I'll pick up with a little review, starting back in verse 4. Now, this is our 20th hour in Hebrews. 20 hours, and we've made it through eight verses, so uh, at this point we'll pick up the pace a little bit. I told everyone that when we got started, I wasn't going to spend four weeks on every verse like I did in the prologue because it's not necessary, but you have to move forward on the basis of knowledge, and there's so much loaded and packed into those first four verses that set the foundation for what this writer is challenging his readers about in terms of their spiritual life. 
that we need to make sure we understand these things. The sad point about the church today and Christianity today is that everybody's afraid to teach any solid doctrine. Everybody's afraid that if you use a word of more than two syllables, that it's going to scare folks off and they're going to go to some other church where all they can do is sing uh, two-syllable songs and and with uh, repeat the same stanzas over and over again. And we've dumbed everything down. But nobody can grow that way. You have to... I, I'm a firm believer in an educational philosophy that you have to teach about six inches over somebody's head so they'll stand on their tiptoes and gulp for air and stretch, and then they grow. If you shoot for their about their navel area... They'll never stretch, and they'll never grow, and they'll never come to understand the great things that the Word of God has for us and that God's provided for us. So sometimes if things get a little, uh, seem like you're walking through quicksand, that's okay. The Holy Spirit will make it clear to you eventually. Hebrews 1, 4 gives us a conclusion or the actually the driving point toward which the author has moved in the opening prologue. And in that verse he writes, having referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, now what I want to make sure we've got as we go through this this evening is that you don't lose a forest for the trees. It's so easy when you stop and look at all the details that you end up focusing so much on the details you lose what the author is trying to communicate. So I want to make sure we have the overview here as we move through this verse. So in terms of review, what, we, what we've seen in that verse is that the closing line of the pro, prologue states that he became better, that Jesus Christ became better than the angels. This indicates development in his humanity. In his deity, Jesus Christ has always been superior to the angels. But in his humanity, he went through a process of growth where he's tested in all points, yet without sin. And on that process of being tested, he grew spiritually, advanced from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, the same way that you and I advance through studying the Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and that became the model or the precedent for the spiritual life in this church age. So he becomes better than the angels on the basis of his own spiritual growth and spiritual advance. The second point from that verse is that the better, in terms of the fact that he is so much better than the angels, the better is related to the inheritance of a more excellent name. He inherits a more excellent name. So by virtue of his advance spiritually, he receives an inheritance. Now the parallel and the analogy and application for us is that the same thing's true for us. On the basis of our advance in the spiritual life, we receive an inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ and certain rewards and blessings that are contingent upon our advance in the spiritual life today. The third thing that we learn from verse 4 is that that name that he receives, the more excellent name, is related to his identification as the son of David in relation to his fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and with reference to his messianic credentials. And as we have seen, those messianic credentials not only relate to his substitutionary work on the cross at the first coming, but they relate to his work 
in his return as the messianic king at the second coming when he establishes the millennial or the messianic kingdom as the son of David and establishes the new covenant. So the author here moves from that statement to a development of that. He is saying in verse 4 that he's received a name that's more excellent than the angels. He's more advanced than the angels. And verses 5 through 13, the rest of this chapter, are going to establish the basis for saying that the Messiah is superior to the angels. And I get the strong suggestion from studying this that there must have been a problem in the early church with false teachers who were coming in. And we know this from later Gnosticism, but it must have been true even at this stage who were promoting a worship or an emphasis on angelic beings. And we've seen that all down through history, and we've even seen it in the last 10 or 15 years with all this emphasis on angels and uh, angels on TV and little angel figurines, and, and everybody's gotten caught up with angels in the New Age movement. But we all know that Satan appears as an angel of light, and we have to recognize, as we do from this passage, what the role and purpose of angels are. So the, the point that he's going to make in verses 5 to 13 is very simple. In verses 5 and 6, he's going to prove that the king priest, that's the Messiah, that the king priest is greater than angels with respect to his authority. That relates to his position. Authority without power is meaningless. So it starts off establishing his authority in the, verses 5 and 6. And then in verses 7 through 14, he demonstrates that the king priest is superior to the angels with respect to his power. Power without authority is meaningless. You have to have both. You have to have authority and you have to have power. So verses 5 through 6 emphasize his position, his authority, and verses 7 through 14, his power. Now, he sets this up through a series of contrasts. That's just... Next thing we need to remember. He sets this up through a series of contrasts. He starts off in verse 5 with that first word for, which means it's an explanation. Whenever you see that word for, most of the time your English for is a translation of the Greek gar, which explains the previous statement. So verse 5 moves right into an explanation of why Jesus has a, is superior to the angels and has a name that is higher than the angels. And it's a quote from Psalm 2-7 connected to a quote from Second Samuel 7-14 indicating that that inherited name relates to the Davidic covenant. And so this position that he has, uh, that he's elevated to as the son related to that Davidic kingship is higher than that of the angels. He's adopted, as it were, an adopted king, but you also have the point that he's fully divine. Both of these elements are here, but but the author is shifting back and forth between emphasizing uh, one aspect over another to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus Christ. In verses 5 and 6, you have these quotes that indicate his superiority, and in verse 6, the Scripture is a quote from uh, Psalm 94, I believe, indicating that, or Psalm 97, 7, 
indicating that the angels are to worship him. That shows that the angels are subordinate to the Son because they are to worship him. But notice you have the, the Son is the focus in verses 5 through 6. The angels in verse 6, uh, is, is, you have a transition verse that the angels are to worship him. And then in verse 7, it focuses on the angels. Verse 7, and then verse 8, it, it's another contrast, but to the Son, he says. And verses 8 and 9 focus on the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his deity, because the emphasis is on his throne being forever and ever, his scepter of righteousness, and then it shifts back to his humanity in verse 9. And then in verse 10, it focuses on his deity, that he is eternal and everlasting and never changing. And then in verse 13, there's another but that says to, that shifts it back to the angels. So there's, it talks about the sun, then a contrast with angels, then back to the sun, and then back to the angels. And then it concludes in verse 14 saying, Are they not all ministering spirits, that is, angels, sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Now, that's a key verse to understand because it not only sums up everything from verse 8 down, but it sets up the challenge or the application that comes in 2, 1 through 4. And let me show you how it does that. Look back at verse 7. And of the angels, he says who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And this is a quote from Psalm 104, verse 4. A quote from Psalm 104, 4. And it calls the angel spirits. Now, it's interesting. There's a lot of debate as to whether pneuma there ought to be translated spirits or wind. And nobody made this observation. That is that the angels are made spirits in that verse, pneuma, and the ministers are, and then they are said to be ministers, and the Greek word for ministers there is uh, liturgos. Let me see if I have a slide on this. The angels are pneuma, which, and angels are spirit beings, and then they're said to be ministers. And the word there isn't uh, diakonos, which is a word for deacon or minister. It's a different word. It's the Greek word liturgos, which indicates a public servant or a minister, and specifically it's used in, this is the word from which we get our English word liturgy. It's specifically related to service within, uh, a, with respect to God in the Scriptures. Now, when you look down to verse 14... It says, are they not all ministering spirits? Guess what two words are used there? Those same two words. Ministering spirits, the word for ministering, is the adjectival form of liturgos, and the word for spirits is pneuma, the plural of pneuma. So when you look at this, this whole section from 8 down to 14 is a development out of verse 7. So we have to understand what is going on in terms of this particular verse and in terms of the contrast. So verse 7 starts off and talks about the angels. Of the angels, he says, 
who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. What that emphasizes is their creaturely nature. It emphasizes their creaturely nature. It says he made them. So they are creatures. That means they are finite. They are temporal. In contrast to that, we have the emphasis on the Son as being sovereign. He has a throne in verse 8. He has a righteous rule that is over the angels in verses 8 and 9. In verses 10 through 12, he is said to be the Creator. In the beginning, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens of the work of your, of your hands. Uh, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. So he is eternal. This is an attribute of deity. And then we see the Son as a sovereign ruler uh, in contrast to the angels in both verses 8 and again at the conclusion in verse 14. So this is the flow that we have in these verses. So it all develop, everything from 8 on develops out of that quote in verse 7. That's why it is so significant. So this quote, in Psalm, as I pointed out last time in, in uh, Hebrews 1.7, is a quote from Psalm 104, verse 4. Let me back up the slides here. And this is a creation psalm. It's a meditation on creation, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God. You are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. Who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. That same imagery is going to be picked up in verse 12, where it talks about the heavens and the earth are like a cloak that are folded up. You have this comparison throughout the Old Testament of the heavens like a cloak or like a garment, something that is spread out. It's a very dramatic physical uh, demonstration or picture. And then it wears out. It's going to go away. It's temporary. Verse 3 of Psalm 104. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. That refers to the uh, initial establishment of the earth, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the winds of the wing, who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, somebody asked me the question if there was an order here in Psalm 104 in the order of creation, and I don't think so. It is simply a meditation on Genesis 1, and it's impossible to draw a chronological order here. Verse 4 and verse 3 are simultaneous. Job 38, 4 through 7 indicates that the angels united sang for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth. So that indicates that the angels were created prior to the establishment of the foundation of the earth. Well, we learned some important things about angelology in these verses, and I just want to point out five of them. Point number one, we learned that angels are incorporeal beings. They have immaterial bodies. They are spirit. They can appear as light. They're flames of fire is um, language that portrays this light essence of their bodies. Second thing we see, the flames of fire indicate a possibility that their bodies are made of light or related to light, 
and it's possibly related to the seraphim. The seraph were those angels that flew around the throne of God, and the word seraph comes from a Hebrew word meaning burning ones. And so perhaps this is a reference to the seraphim as the burning ones in Isaiah chapter 6. Third thing we see is that angels do not have an inheritance with God as believers do. Angels do not have an inheritance with God. That's what sets us apart. We have an inheritance just as the Lord Jesus Christ through His advance inherited a better name so we, when we follow Him and are co-sufferers with Him, according to Romans 8, we will be uh, co-heirs with Him. So we have an inheritance that the angels do not have. Fourth, angels are not to be worshipped. Angels are servants of God. They carry out His uh, commands. They oversee the physical operation, I believe, of the universe. But they are not to be worshipped. They are uh, a higher being than we are at the moment, but one day we will rule and judge the angels, uh, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Angels are servants who perform the will of God and serve Him and His people. That's the emphasis here, is that they are servants, and the Lord Jesus Christ is a sovereign ruler. So the contrast here is between the angels' role as servants and the Lord Jesus Christ's authority over them. Okay? Then we come to verse 8. Verse 8 makes a dramatic shift back to the Son. And verses 8 through 12 focus on the qualifications of the Son and what sets Him apart and superior to the angels. In verse 8 we read, But contrast to the Son, He says, that's God the Father addressing the Son, and this is a quote from Psalm 45, verses 6, and then verse 11 will be, or verse 9 will be a quote from Psalm 45, verse 7. Your, but to the Son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now it's interesting that an Aramaic translation or paraphrase of this is known as the Targum of Jonathan, which dates from five centuries A.D., five centuries after Christ. And it gives a paraphrase of Psalm 45.2, and it reads, Your beauty, O King Messiah, is greater than that of the sons of men. So it is clear from this Targum, which is a Jewish Targum, that they understood Psalm 45 to be a messianic psalm and to be addressing the Messiah and the rule of the Messiah. That immediately connects it back to the Davidic covenant. Who is it that is going to come and rule over Israel forever and ever? It's the greater son of David promised in the Davidic covenant. Now, Psalm 45 is a focus on a royal wedding. We don't know the royal wedding. We don't know uh, who, who it was specifically written for, for, but it portrays that future royal wedding between the church, the bride of Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ, which takes place at the end of the tribulation period. We are in heaven. We get purified at the judgment seat of Christ. We receive our rewards, and then there is the wedding feast and the church 
becomes the bride of Christ. This reference to the eternal throne and Hebrews 1.8 tells us a couple of things. First of all, as I just indicated, it indicates that this is the Davidic throne. This is not the throne of God. Remember, Revelation 3, Jesus said that he is sitting on his throne, not the Father's throne. I mean, when we're, that overcomers will be able to sit on his throne, but he is currently not sitting on that throne. He is at the right hand of God the Father. So he doesn't take the throne until the second coming. The second thing we see here is that the person who is on this throne must be an eternal person. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It is an eternal throne. So it's a shift to where it's emphasizing not just his humanity, but also the deity. And this I pointed out as we went through our study on the Davidic covenant, that the Davidic covenant foresaw or implied that the Son or the ultimate one to fulfill that covenant, would be both human and divine. Because, as I said, either you have an eternal succession, one generation after another on into eternity, or that succession is going to end in one who is eternal. And, of course, only God is eternal. So that draws this together, that the statement, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The throne is the Davidic throne, which references the humanity of Christ, and the fact that he is referred to as O God and it's forever and ever indicates the deity. The next thing we learn, the third thing we see from this, is that this verbiage, the words that are used here, fit other verses that relate and describe the Davidic covenant. For example, in Psalm 45, uh, 2 Samuel 7:16, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, your throne shall be established forever. That's right out of the passage on the Davidic covenant. It's a similar verbiage. Psalm 89.3, I made a covenant with my chosen, I have sworn to my servant David. And then in verse 20 it says, I have found my servant David with my holy oil, I have anointed him. And then we will see in verse 9, that there is a reference to the fact that God has anointed you, that is the Messiah, with the oil of gladness more than your companion. So we see this, this similarity of verbiage. Then again in Isaiah 9-7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And so we see a parallel between that and the emphasis in Hebrews 1.8, a scepter of righteousness, that the characteristic of this kingdom is a righteous rule. That's, the indi- that's what scepter of righteousness uh, describes. It doesn't mean he has a physical scepter that is righteous. It is a picture of his rule. He will have a scepter... And that indicates his rule and his authority and his power. And that scepter is, it's, is righteous. That is a descriptive genitive. Isaiah 11.4 picks up this same terminology. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. And then in Psalm 89 verse 14 we read, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. 
mercy, which is our Hebrew word chesed, which we've studied, which indicates the everlasting, faithful love of God, His loyal love, His faithfulness to His covenant, that mercy and truth go before your face. And again and again in the Psalms, we see this connection between righteousness and justice on the one hand and loving kindness and truth on the other hand. And this forms the core of God's essence, I believe. This is the core, is righteousness, justice, love, and truth. That is the core, which I've referred to as the integrity of God. That is the basis for all of His actions to human beings. Now back to verse 8. But to the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And that phrase... That phrase, a scepter of righteousness, means that his kingdom is going to be governed by perfect righteousness. The rule, the government that is established during the millennial kingdom is going to be perfect. Perfect perfect execution, perfect administration, uh, perfect judicial system, and there, will be a, uh, there won't be any flaws. No matter how perfect any human system gets, there are always flaws. There are always failures. And God knew that in His omniscience. When He delegated judicial responsibility to the human race, He knew in eternity past that people were going to make mistakes and execute innocent people and that there were going to be many other problems. Nevertheless, He still delegated that responsibility to man. So it's never fair to say that because there are mistakes, we shouldn't have capital punishment. We may need to go back and evaluate our consistency and go back to a principle of making sure the capital punishment is is, uh, dealt with within an abbreviated time, six months or a year in my opinion, and and maybe that's a little too long in many cases, but this idea that we have today where it stretches on and on and on for year after year after year and costs the taxpayer millions of dollars is just absurd. Uh, righteousness during the millennial kingdom will see a quick execution of justice. Then we come to Hebrews 1.9, which is a, another quote from Psalm 45, verse 7. Psalm 1.9, I mean Hebrews 1.9 says, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Well, what's he saying here? What's the significance of this quote? It's tied to the previous verse indicating the righteous rule of the Messiah. But in this verse, it's reflecting not on his deity. Remember I said in verse 8, there's this emphasis on his deity. It's his throne. It's eternal. Uh, But in verse 9, it focuses on the uh, human qualifications. This first phrase is quite significant. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Where do we find another passage like that in the Scripture? Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Is this talking about love versus hate? Or is this a figure of speech? It's an idiom. Whenever you have this love and hate expression... It is talking about acceptance and rejection. 
And here it is talking to the Son. The you refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, you have loved righteousness. And it is a, an aorist tense verb indicating that which took place in the past during his incarnation on the earth. And during his time on the earth, he loved righteousness and rejected lawlessness. Now, what is lawlessness? Uh, lawlessness, well, let's just back up a minute. The love is based on, well, you have three words to deal with in this. In the Septuagint, which is the translation the writer of Hebrews used, he uses the aorist active indicative of agapao. In the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew original, it used the Hebrew word ahav in the Cal perfect. And ahav is a word usually for uh, attraction to something as opposed to kessid, which is the word for faithful uh, loyalty. So it's emphasizing a rapport. And then the uh, Nestle Alon Greek text and the, Maser- and the uh, majority text use the Greek word agapao in Hebrews 1.9 uh, and an aorist active indicative just as the Septuagint in Psalm 45.7. So what does all that mean? That means that the emphasis in love has to do with attraction as opposed to sentimentality or emotion or something of that nature and indicates the affinity between the character of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ and the integrity of God the Father. He loves righteousness. In his humanity, he was consistent with the character of God the Father. In contrast, he hated or rejected Wickedness or lawlessness, as it's translated in uh, in the uh, in the Greek, the wickedness in, on the Greek text back in Hebrews 1:8 is anomia. Anomia. I have this up here, Psalm 45, but it's Hebrews 1:8. It's anomia, which is the alpha prefix a plus the word from namas, meaning law. It means literally without the law. And some people want to, would translate that lawlessness in the sense of breaking the Mosaic law, but that's not the idea. The way the word is used is it indicates transgression of God's standards. It literally means, or the way it's used, is the violation or the transgression, transgression of a standard of law, not the Mosaic law, but the standard of God's character. So that the law indicated by this word anomia, is the transgression of God's character, not some human law code or the Mosaic law. This is clearly seen from 1 John 3, verse 4, where John wrote, whoever commits sin also commits anomia. Whoever commits sin, hamartia, for missing the mark, whoever commits sin also commits Lawlessness, anomia. So this equates the word anomia with hamartia. It's the same thing. It is a synonym for sin. And that's the conclusion of verse 4. And sin is lawlessness. So it's a clear statement of, of the meaning of anomia. So when we read in Hebrews 1.8 or 1.9 that you have loved righteousness, that is the standard of God's character, and you have hated lawlessness, it could be rendered you have rejected sin. And that's in the process of the spiritual growth in the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He always took a stand for righteousness. Whenever his volition was involved, he chose righteousness and rejected sin. He never operated independent of the Father's character. This is the doctrine we call the impeccability of the Lord Jesus Christ. Impeccability is based on the Latin root peccare, which means to sin. And M, the I-M prefix, is a negative, a negation, and so it means without sin, that Jesus Christ lived in His humanity without sin. He never sinned, and this qualified Him to go to the cross. In fulfillment of the Old Testament type, Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Lamb there specifically refers to the uh, Lamb that was chosen for the Passover meal and for the sacrifices. There was to be a Lamb that was without spot or blemish. There was no sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, He was fully qualified to go to the cross and die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And then in the next phrase, in verse in uh, it should be Hebrews one nine, where it says, "Therefore God." The Greek for therefore is dia tuta, dia tuta, which indicates not be, not therefore, but for this reason. For what reason? For the reason that he was impeccable. On the basis of that reason. The, the reason is stated is because in, in your humanity during the hypostatic union, you hated, uh, you loved righteousness and you hated lawlessness. Therefore, because of that, for this reason, God, God the Father, your God, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now that word anointed is the aorist active indicative of the Greek verb creo. Creo is the basis for the noun Christos, which means to be anointed. Now, there's another Greek word for anointing called alepho. And alepho would describe the everyday uh, things that you would do when you took a shower and you put oil on your hair or oil on your skin. In desert climate, uh, they would put oil on their skin. They would anoint their skin. And that was a non uh, non-religious uh, or non-ritual use of anointing. But this is a ritual relationship. Uh, God has anointed you. There is a spiritual significance to the word creo. It's only used where there is a uh, spiritual significance. And it is the basis, for the, as I said, for the Greek word Christos, meaning anointed one, which is the Greek translation of Mashiach or Messiah for the anointed one. And we could translate it, appointed one, because that's the significance of being anointed, is that God had signified this person for a particular role. Priests were anointed or appointed. Kings were anointed or appointed. So sometimes we use that word anointed and we get this kind of funny, uh, spiritual, pious feeling. But let's just bring it down to everyday significance. Therefore, God your God has appointed you and the way this was signified was the anointing oil. But here it's not necessarily literal. It is a figurative ex- expression. He's appointed you with the oil of gladness. It's not a literal oil. It is a 
It is, you've been anointed with gladness. It is an adjectival genitive indicating the joy that the Lord Jesus Christ possessed that will characterize His rule and reign in the Millennial Kingdom. So the phrase, oil of joy, doesn't symbolize an, uh, an anointing that occurred when he's baptized in the Jordan River. It doesn't relate to his ascension and session. It describes the characteristic, again, of his rule. It is a righteous rule, and it is a rule characterized by joy and happiness throughout the Millennial Kingdom. But then there's one more important word in this verse, and that is the last word, companions. And the word companions emphasizes uh, those who are with him as co-heirs. Another verse that relates to the oil of gladness is Isaiah 61.3 that talks about the millennial kingdom and uses the, word, the phrase the oil of joy for mourning, but it is related to the beginning of the, of the millennial kingdom. Now, the phrase uh, companion is the Greek word metakoi, M-E-T-A-C-H-O-I, metakoi. And metakoi, or metakos in the singular, refers to those who are companions or participants with the Lord Jesus Christ. The analogy is those who were David's companions in the wilderness. When David was rejected by Saul and persecuted by Saul, he went off into the uh, Judean wilderness. And there, others who were being persecuted by Saul, others who were following the Lord, joined him. And these were David's mighty band, and he formed a cadre of leaders while he was in the wilderness. And then when he finally became king after Saul died, it was that cadre of David's mighty men who ruled and administered the kingdom under him. That's the analogy, that's the Old Testament type of what is happening today. We are like David's mighty men. The Lord is gathering together this group of companions who are being trained today to rule and reign with Him in eternity. This is the significance of the phrase, with the oil, you have been anointed with the oil of gladness more than your companions. The companions are not angels, they are the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ from the church age. Now, verses 8 and 9 emphasize the uh, throne as righteous, as eternal, and that this is due the Lord Jesus Christ because He's qualified in His humanity by His love for righteousness and rejection of lawlessness. This is the same thing that is to characterize the believer who is advancing in preparation to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ, that that becomes our standard. Now, we're not always going to make that standard. We still have a sin nature. We're going to fail. Sometimes we're going to fail miserably. But that's why the Lord always meets us in forgiveness. That's why we, all, we have 1 John 1, 9, so that we can admit or acknowledge the sin in our life, and the Lord forgives us. And there is complete and total cleansing at that point so that we can continue our spiritual advance. And I always caution folks, remember, just because you're forgiven doesn't mean the consequences are removed. Uh, even though David was forgiven by the Lord because of his sin of adultery and murder and conspiracy and cover-up, he still had to go through 
four stages of significant divine discipline that destroyed his family and brought misery into his life for the next 10 or 15 years, all because of the decisions that he made. He's forgiven by God so that he's back in fellowship. He can uh, apply the Word of God and apply doctrine to his life as he grows through that discipline so that cursing is turned into blessing. But the consequences aren't removed just because you're forgiven. And too often we get the idea that, well, I'll just confess my sin and just move on and, and somehow the consequences are removed. And we need to realize that many times the Lord doesn't remove those consequences so that we can learn from those failures. Now, Hebrews talks about these metakoi in several passages. For example, in Hebrews 3.1, the writer addresses his audience as holy brethren partakers, that is, the metakoi of a heavenly calling. That is, our destiny is to rule and reign with Him. Now, not every believer will reach that destiny. Some of us will fail, and we will enter into heaven yet... uh, uh, without it as with with smoke and uh, with the loss of our rewards, according to First Corinthians 13. Nevertheless, we do not lose our salvation. Uh, Hebrews 3:14 mentions it again. For we have become partakers of Christ. That is, we become metakoi, partakers of Christ. If third class condition, maybe we will, maybe we won't. See, some of us won't make it because we fail to mature as believers. We take Bible class lightly. We take the Word of God lightly. We become arrogant and think that we can uh, get away with the sin in our life, and we're just going to uh, use 1 John 1, 9 as a license to sin. And so we don't ever go anywhere. And then we're uh, failures in the Christian life. But if we want to be partakers, that's the same concept as overcomers that we've been studying in Revelation 2, If we have become partakers, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. In other words, don't fail in your advance. Don't reach a certain stage and then just kind of coast the rest of your life. The spiritual life doesn't end until the Lord takes you home. Don't reach a stage and then just relax. And this happens a lot, you see, with, I've seen this over the years with older people. You get to be 65, 70, 75, and all of a sudden you feel like you've lived your life. Your spiritual life isn't as significant. But we are to hold fast until the end. And those who hold fast to the end and reach spiritual maturity are those that will be rulers and reigners with the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we come to the next set of quotes in Hebrews 1.10. This is our seventh set of quotation from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 28. Psalm 102, verses 25 to 28 is the background for this quotation. And he goes on to say, and in addition to the Statement made in Psalm 45, we have another statement made in Psalm 102 related to the sun. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Not only are you the one who in the future is going to establish a throne of righteousness to rule and reign, but in the past you were the creator who laid the foundation of the earth. 
This is clearly seen from per- verses like, so- like uh, Colossians 1, 16, and 17. Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities, all things were created through Him and for Him. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the active creator in the creation process in Genesis chapter 1. God the Father is the architect of the plan, but it is God the Son who was the project manager. He is the one who uh, oversaw the construction and did the actual creating during those six active days of creation. So the Lord Jesus Christ is seen here as the Creator. Now remember, if He's the Creator, that's in contrast to the angels who are made back in verse 7, where it stated, who made His angels spirits. So if angels are creatures and the Lord Jesus Christ is the Creator, then He is superior to the angels. So in verse thir- uh, so He goes on to say in verse 13, we'll skip down what we see mostly in the quote from Psalm 102. Now this is, a, this is something important. <clears throat> we could stop and we could exegete our way through each word in Psalm 102 in the quote in verses 10, 11, and 12, but that's not the writer's point. What I find interesting is apparently in the Midrashic technique of the Jews, if they were quoting, if they wanted to to make one point, they would quote four verses just to make one point. And that one point was a clause in those verses. We see this in in, uh, Peter's uh, Pentecostal sermon on the day of Pentecost when he quotes from Joel chapter 2. In a very famous passage, Joel 2.28, talks about the fact that in the day of the Lord, when the Lord returns, there's going to be all these signs in the heavens. The uh, sun's going to be darkened, the moon's going to be turned to blood, and all these other things, none of which happened on the day of Pentecost. And nowhere in Joel 2 does it mention speaking in tongues. That's the only thing that happened on the day of Pentecost. So why is he quoting Joel 2? Because he's quoting, he quotes three verses from Joel 2, he quotes the whole passage, and all he's doing is making a point that this is the same kind of activity uh, today that you see that the Holy Spirit's going to perform at the end of the tribulation period. So he quotes all these verses just to make this one simple point, so that standard approach. And the writer of Hebrews does this again and again. We'll see this. He'll quote three verses, and he's simply he's making one simple point, and that is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Creator, verse 10, verse 11, that the creation itself is temporary, it will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak, that we will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you don't change. You are the same, and your years will not fail. So this whole quotation is to emphasize three points. He's the creator. He will never change. He will, the, the creation will perish, but he will not. And third, that he will never change. And then we come to verse 13. It's a contrast again, but in contrast to what has just been said of the Son, we're going to go back to look at the limitations related to the angels. And so it, he uh, quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. 
which is a psalm of David, where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now we've studied this verse in relation to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven where he sat at the right hand of the Father. Now, what was he doing during that time? Well, according to Psalm 2.8, which we studied, he was asking God to give him the nations as an inheritance. In that interim period between his seating at the right hand of the Father and his coming to earth to uh, take the inheritance, God the Father is working to build this band of companions who will be the associate rulers with the Lord Jesus Christ in the future. So this is the Lord's position during the church age. He is seated at the right hand until I, God the Father, make your enemies your footstool. So God never said this to any of the angels. This is a special, a special statement directed only to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Psalm 110.1 is also very important because it indicates at least a dual personage in the Trinity. You have the Lord said to my Lord. Who is speaking in Psalm 110.1? It's David. David is the greatest king on the face of the earth at that time. Who is David's human superior? There is none. So when he refers to my Lord... He can't be referring to any human being because David wasn't under the authority of any human being. He can only be referring to God. So you have the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, meaning the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ in terms of, of its prophetic implication. And at the time that it's fulfilled, it is the risen Lord after the resurrection, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, Till I make your enemies your footstool. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13 emphasizes that the Lord Jesus Christ is over the angels in his session. Remember at the ascension, according to Ephesians 1, uh, 1, 17 to 19, I can't remember the exact verse, 17 or 18, he ascended over the angels and the principalities and the powers. So he is over them seated at the right hand of the Father. And then there is this conclusion. This conclusion ties it together, and it goes back and picks up the terminology from verse 7, from the quote from Psalm uh, 90, let me see, Psalm 104.4, who makes his angels spirits, pneuma, and his ministers, liturgos, a flame of fire. So in Hebrews 1.14, he concludes, Are they not, meaning the angels, are they not all ministering spirits? The word for ministering is the adjectival form of liturgos, the same word we saw back in verse 7 referring to the angels as ministers. And then spirits, of course, is the same noun that we find back there, pneuma. Angels are spirits beings. And what this verse tells us is that the angels are ministering spirits sent forth by God the Father to minister. And that word is diakonia, which indicates service. They are servants of God to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Now, who are those who will inherit salvation? Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this verse is an interesting verse. 
Because this is the only verse in the Bible that people go to for the concept of guardian angels. Now, who does this verse indicate the guardian angels are for? Unbelievers or believers? Only believers, for those who will inherit salvation. Does this mean that God assigns in His omniscience, He knows who's going to become a believer, so He assigns these angels to watch over even those who are not yet saved because He knows they will be saved. And so He assigns these angels to watch over them even before they are saved. So every believer has angels that watch over him and serve in relation to his own life in various ways carrying out the will of God. We don't know all the ways that are involved, but it certainly has to do with protection in the angelic conflict. So these angels are ministering spirits who serve those who will inherit salvation. Now we get two interesting words. The word for inherit is kleronomeo, which is simply the verb to inherit. It's a present active infinitive uh, indicating, and here it's used as a substantival form, that we are inheritors of salvation. And this connects back to the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one, in verse 4, who, because of his spiritual growth, inherited a more excellent name than the angels. And if we advance, we also have this inheritance. And that brings us to the last word, which is the word that is so important to understand. And that is the Greek word soteria, translated salvation. And the question that we have to address, is this talking about phase one salvation? Or is this talking about phase three glorification? And that's the important concept. Because in our culture, in American evangelicalism, what we have been taught to think is that, that this word saved equals justification salvation at phase one. But what we're going to see here when we get into the next few verses is that this concept of soteria in Hebrews is not talking about justification, salvation, phase one. It's talking about glorification, reaching and achieving all of the fullness of your salvation. So what the verse indicates is that these ministering spirits are sent forth to minister for those who will inherit Salvation, And this is the potential for every single believer to be a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't talking about getting saved. This is talking about working out your salvation, as Paul says in Philippians 2, working out the consequences of your salvation in terms of spiritual growth so that when we are either raptured or we're face-to-face with the Lord, we will hear the Lord say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Join the ranks of the overcomers, the metakoi, to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back. And that is the exciting challenge of the book of Hebrews for every one of us, is are we going to be consistent? Are we going to keep at it until the Lord comes back or the Lord takes us home and not fall by the wayside? But are we going to press on until we reach spiritual maturity that we may be prepared for our future destiny with Him.
Well, we'll come back and do some more study on soteria next Thursday night, as we, especially as we get into the next section. Because remember, the key verse in the next four verses in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, is that well-known phrase in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And as I'm going to point out, that's not talking about neglecting the justification, but if we neglect that future destiny, that full phase three glorification God has in store for every believer, how shall we escape, that is, the shame at the judgment seat of Christ, if we neglect that destiny that God has set aside for each one of us? So we'll close in prayer and come back to this next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word. We thank You for the way that You challenge us in Your Word and You lay out all of these details, going back and to all the various passages in the Old Testament, weaving these doctrines together so that we can come to a greater appreciation of who our Lord Jesus Christ is and what His future destiny is and what our future destiny can be with Him as joint heirs with Him. Father, we pray that we would be uh, responsive to this challenge from your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.